welcome to Trailblazing Text. And today we have two familiar faces. So we have Daryl Blackburn with us uh, and we have Sergeant Donovan joining us again. And so the, the point of this conversation is that there was actually a lot of great feedback on both episodes with uh, Sergeant Donovan and also Daryl. And so we thought bringing them together to kind of have a further conversation um, just was a good opportunity to sit down, especially during kind of these crazy times. So I appreciate you two uh, coming back. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're just going to answer some questions and we're going to have some dialogue and, and, you know, have conversations like normal people are capable of having, uh, today. So one thing I do want to kind of just for those who maybe didn't watch the other episodes, um, an opportunity for you both to introduce yourself. So Daryl, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself first? Sure. Uh, my name is Daryl Blackburn, born and raised Houstonian, grew up on the South side, close to Hobby Airport. Um, I, uh, I'm a petroleum engineer by degree, um, and uh, yeah, that's that's why I'm a lover of baseball and politics and crawfish and barbecue. Um, <laughs> but I most of all, I think I like dialogue and having having good uh, positive um, communication with people. Um, yeah. and, and and so that's why I'm, I'm happy again to be invited on your uh, platform. Yeah, I appreciate it. And one random thing about crawfish, I found out on Friday that in Wyoming, they mm -hmm. have crawfish season right now. And yeah. so I had crawfish on Friday and it was crazy. But anyway, we'll talk about that another time. All right, uh, Sergeant Donovan, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yes, um, I'm Lee Donovan. Uh, I'm not from Houston. I was born in New Jersey, actually. I uh, grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas and ended up here through finding jobs and everything else. Um, like you, you pretty much said all of my interests too. I'd, I'd had football, basketball, and every other sport in there too, but um, barbecue, crawfish, and having dialogues, I mean, everything you said is kind of in my same boat. Um, awesome. I think that's why one of the reasons I agreed to sit here and talk to you is I could tell just listening to you that you're somebody that I could have a conversation with um, about all this. And Likewise, I really man. Appreciate, I appreciate the, uh, Brittany bringing us together to talk about everything we got to talk about. Yeah, for sure. And I just want to give kudos to both of you also. Uh, again, going back to the feedback, everyone had positive feedback of just the fact that you guys are, both seem open-minded. You're able to have conversations, the tough conversations. You may disagree on things. We all may disagree on things, but we can still have the conversation respectfully and just continue the, the, the dialogue. So uh, I definitely think that's important. So let's go ahead and just jump right in. And the first question, uh, I'll, I'll give you kind of the floor to answer first, Daryl. Uh, and then Sergeant Donovan, you can go ahead. But why do you think everything has come to such a head right now? Why do you think society is so divided? And and how do we fix it to become united um, again, or you know, just to become united in general? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, first, I think in terms of things coming to a head right now, I would have to say that <laughs> I think this is the first time in society. Um, maybe not the first time, but we're in, a, in uh, an age of our society where things are just getting filmed, right? Yeah. I don't think that, especially when we talk about things like injustice, police brutality, um, um, you know, just crime statistic, whatever it is, like we now have a different set of sources that we can rely on. You know, in our parents' generation, whatever Walter Cronkite said was like, that was what that was what it was and nobody questioned it because mm -hmm. you just have one source right 
Um, but now, especially with the emergence of social media and instantaneous news sources that aren't instantaneously verified, or um, I think that that's um, a big uh, catalyst to a lot of passionate polarity that we mm-hmm. see right now is the fact that a lot of people just blame everything on the media, blah, blah, blah. But, and that's, a, you can do that. And that's, that's an easy um, answer, but um, I don't think like police brutality necessarily is a new thing at all. I think that it's, it's being filmed. It's, and I don't, and I think that um, just as a whole, um, things are so easily accessible, more accessible than ever before. And that can be a good thing and a bad thing. Because mm-hmm. like I said earlier, just because something is accessible doesn't mean that it's accurate. Mm-hmm. And so more than ever before, people have information that's being fed to them like a fire hydrant, you know, being force fed to them. And that information can also not necessarily be accurate. It's more opinionated than sure. ever before. Um, we all, we've always known that, that crime sells, that uh, I know if you're in media, the term is if it bleeds, it leads. Right. And, and it's true because that's what gets people fearful and mm-hmm. fear drives viewership and viewership drives revenue. Yeah. Um, and right now everything is just bleeding and yeah. it's because there's so much viewership because there's so many avenues that people can force feed information to you. And then because of that, there's just so much revenue everywhere. So yeah. I, I can go down that rabbit hole all day long, but I just, I think that that's kind of where we are right now as a country where we need to decide um, am I going to allow myself to continue to be force-fed uh, unverified information? Um, and then, if this is, if 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 I do get information that's valid that affects me or doesn't necessarily affect me, how am I going to respond to it? Am I going to respond yeah. to it with opinions, or am I going to respond to it with compassion, patience, understanding, things like that? So, sure. it's a long roundabout answer. For no, fair, what I think fair enough. Are. And all right, Sergeant Donovan. Um, well, I think he pretty much hit the nail on the head with all of that. Um, I think a lot of the divisiveness with what we have going on at Y came right now is because I think he mentioned in mine and in his previous podcast as well is that right now emotions are running high with COVID and everything else. Like there's just everybody is just on edge in every different circumstance of life based on their jobs or what's going on, based on what's going on in society. And then when he said viewership about everybody being accessible and being able to see everything that's going on and we're in a you know by now society where you have one click and you get it um and it does the same thing before you verify anything on facebook or instagram and if it hits an emotional trigger you know so if something is emotionally triggering to you and you see it and it offends you you hit share you hit send you send it to everybody and you spread it before it can do anything and it, it almost throws gasoline onto a flame with what's sure. going on. It's not saying that what, and we're not talking about any specific incidents, obviously, sure. um, but just in general, when you're talking about politics, when you're talking about anything and you get that emotional reaction and you just hit send and you get, and it, it hits something in you and now it's hit somebody else. Now it hits somebody else and it just keeps going and spreads like wildfire before the truth is even really out there about whatever it is. And it could be a discussion on either side. You know, if you get into politics right or left, it happens everywhere. It's, it doesn't, mm-hmm happen on just one side it's just spread everywhere yeah um right now i do think that i mean i can't say the word unplug but it's one of those things where if we just got off of the thing on social media because it's one of those times in our lives where social media has connected everybody that would not normally be connected 
through everywhere. But at the same time, we are less truly connected. We rely on connecting through Facebook and through sharing information that way instead of sitting down at a table and talking face to face. Because I see so many comments negatively from one side or the other on, on these all different types of issues. And the way it's come across, the, the wording that is used, the vulgarity that's written there, that you wouldn't say to somebody in their face. You know what I mean? Like you'd have a normal conversation about this, but because it's, it, you hit send when you're so emotionally charged, you know what I mean? Like it's one of those things like don't send an email when you're, when you're, when you're upset, like (laughs) slow down and read it. But we've given the platform to Facebook and Instagram where you can just hit send and share it and share it and share it without any type of editing mechanism where you take the emotion out of it and use a rational mind to actually think about what's being, what's happening, you know? Um, As far as fixing it, I think true conversations, um, getting people in positions of power, as, as he talked about in his last podcast, that can actually make a difference with this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Responsible, responsible people that are actually providing this information to the public. You know, mm-hmm. you just said a signal like Walter Cronkite was the only source a while back. Well, now you have 50,000 different people out there sourcing information, but nobody's verifying it before we hear it. And right. I think too many of us take it for granted and, you know, take it as Bible verses that... <laughs> what's being told us and what's being fed us is true. And right. I think that needs to be something that we all work on. And I mean, I'm guilty of it too, because I get an emotional reaction. Yeah. And I think that's the, the most part is that when you see something and it provides an emotional response to you, you have that knee jerk reaction to just hit send or make a comment or do something when it's not in your normal nature to do that, but they've done what they're trying to do by cre- an elicit emotional response from me, yeah. whether that's good or bad. And it causes so many different emotions to clash at the same time that it's like one of those things that cooler heads need to prevail. Mm-hmm. Calm down and have a conversation. And yeah, let's, there's a problem here, but is it really this? It should be something else. And I think dialogue is the only way. Um, mm-hmm. And then an open mind um, on both sides to realize that I am not a perfect human being. Right. I don't know everything. I don't know the right way to do everything. And there's going to be a lot of other people that have different experiences that are going to be better than me. And mm-hmm listening to them, <laughs> talking, yeah. having the conversations. Um, and I think right now, the biggest thing to fix this country is taking a deep breath. Mm-hmm. Everybody taking a deep breath. Let's sit down. Let's figure this out. Because if we're trying to make decisions when we're emotional, it's never going to be the right choice. Yeah. And I think almost we're almost pinning each other against each other. And it's just counterproductive it at is. this point. Right. And um before I move on, though, Daryl, do you have anything else to add before I follow up with another question? No, not on that. Like I said, that that's uh, we're, we're going to completely agree on that. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it just this is how I, I think uh, you know Sergeant Donovan and I are probably a good representation of the bulk of society. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of how we feel about um, you know humanity as a whole, right? And I think that one of the big problems is that we only see the snapshots of like the worst of our society at all times. Like, yeah. And then you have people who are forced to make comments about the worst in our society, whether it's you look at people hijacking protests or showing up to to different um, events on on all sides. Right. And but those are such a minority in our society, right. in my opinion. Um and, but we're forced to always comment on, on um, the worst, on the worst of, people. and it's like that, you know, in, in, in so many different facets, but um, yeah, I don't have anything necessarily to add to, to what you said. There. All right. 
So just to move on, just kind of moving down this list. And for those who are listening, we kind of compiled a rough list of, of questions just to kind of keep the conversation on point. But my next question is, since both of you guys live in Houston, um, this is something that I have observed uh, from afar in Denver. But, you know, why do you think Houston hasn't reached the level of, of violence and the riots and, and the chaos that cities like Portland, Seattle, Chicago and others have reached. What do you think makes Houston different in that sense? And I'll start with Sergeant Donovan. Okay. Um, well, I mean, Daryl, you're like natural, man. You like transition to this when you talk about hijacking protests and everything else. Because um, a lot of this started, you know, with George Floyd and the protests going on with that. But there were people that, and you've seen this in the countries, or in the countries, the cities, especially like Portland and Seattle, where those protests have been hijacked and turned into a movement for Antifa. You know what I mean? When it it completely takes away from the message that was trying to be sent by the peaceful protesters and to protest everything that was happening at the time. And it's turned into this anti-fascist movement that is this has nothing to do with police brutality. I mean, it's a completely different subject um, going on there. Now, but you're also talking about two different types of violence. The violence of what's going on in Seattle and Portland for Antifa versus the violence in Chicago. Um, the violence in Chicago is it's it's heartbreaking. Um, when you're seeing the amount of shootings that are happening every single day, but those are more related to gang and street violence, whereas the ones in Portland and Seattle are the anti-fascists that are trying to take down the establishment and take over areas of the town and everything else. So it's two different types of violence. Mm -hmm. um, what's going on in Chicago is just, it's horrendous. Um, when it's just citizens on citizens and it's, it's not an us versus them, it's people hurting each other. And I, I don't live in Chicago. I don't know all the statistics. I know the statistics on the shootings, but I don't know everything about it on how we could fix that other than we go back to the basic thing of having human um, compassion for other people. You know what I mean? If you, don't have, if you don't have regard for another person's life as an individual, how can I legislate anything that's going to make it better? Sure. You know what I mean? Murder's already illegal. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, you can't legislate evil sometimes. Like if people are bringing uh, violence upon each other, that's the way it is. The other cities with the violence, it's it's people that are just fed up with everything going on and they're trying to hit the reset button. And I personally don't believe in socialism or anything like that. I, I'm completely against it. Obviously, they think it's the right way to go. Um, but they've turned what is a, a right in this country of doing peaceful protests into almost a war zone. Mm -hmm. And that was not what this was set up to do. Um, that's not what anybody should be allowed to do, if you ask me, bringing violence to a peaceful protest. Um, one thing we did do here well in Houston is those protests were by and large peaceful on both sides. The protesters here were amazing. They did their job. And you could hear, even when they're using loudspeakers and talking, you could hear the passion in their voice because the topic meant something. It means something. It hurt them and it hit them emotionally. And you could hear that coming across when they're talking to us across the lines. Mm -hmm. But not once when I was there with all the ones that were coming across that we get hit in the head. Now, there were a couple instances where there's agitators you know, right. in the crowd that are doing that. But that's the minority, as he said earlier. I mean, it's like he may have the natural transition <laughs> to the next question with what he was saying. Um, but I do think that the city leadership here, I think that the citizenry here, I think that the police department here, um, being the fact that we are very divorce, diverse and we make up we're pretty much spot on with the diversity of our city. This isn't, you know, 95% uh, white police officers, you know, over a minority um, city. We're very diverse, just like our population is. Mm -hmm. I think that has something to do with it. I mean, I don't know the answers to it. Um, 
I don't want to say it's just dumb luck because I yeah. don't have the answers, but there's got to be something to it as far as the way our leadership handled the protests and the way the protest leadership responded with HPD. I mean, it's a, it's a relationship where if we're not talking to each other and we're not coordinating, it's going to go bad. And I think that, and this is purely speculation because I was not, I'm not in the position of power to be up there with those conversations, but that the communication between the protest leaders and the leadership of HPD in the city was a little bit better um, mm -hmm. than in some other cities where the, the relationships between them are strained there and they're not as strained here. Yeah, and when we talked last time, you spoke very highly again of just the protesters working in tangent with you guys of, you know, this is what we want to do. You guys, you know, allowed it, allowed it, helped it, made took the agitators out so peace, people peacefully could protest and voice their opinions, which to me is one of the greatest rights that we have as Americans. So I think that relationship, so again, you know, just as an observer, definitely uh, is a powerful relationship and, and, and allowed Houston not to burn to the ground like we're seeing some cities uh, go through right now. So with that, um, Daryl, what is your take on Houston and why Houston's been rather civil as compared to other cities? Um, yeah, I, I think also that's a tough, that's a tough one to answer. Um, like why specifically sure. Houston hasn't had the, the, um, the, oversaturation of violence and rioting and that kind of thing. I think he, he mentioned, you know, a lot of good points of, of why, you know, why, why we could, it could be different here. It just, it just kind of is. I mean, we do have better, um, we, we are, we do tend to be a little bit more content with leadership in this city than others. Um, uh, you look at uh, the police chief Acevedo, he's very liked, he's very well respected respected um our our um our harris county judge lena hidalgo's respected um so i, I, I feel like there is a better uh, relationship between citizens and leadership mm -hmm. in this city versus other places um mm -hmm. one thing that i will comment on this is like the i think it's very easy we hear it a lot the comparisons to chicago and chicago um it's like a, it's just like a very, uh, what's the word? It's just, it's just a very easy narrative sometimes to like deflect to. Not that I disagree with you, but like from a statistical perspective, just crime rate versus population in this, in this country, 2019, Chicago was the 29th deadliest city in this country. Um, the 28th deadliest city in this country was Houston. Mm -hmm. The 30th deadliest city in this country was Lubbock. So, like, in terms of crime rate per population, per capita, Chicago, uh, a lot of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an easy narrative because the numbers are high, right? If you look at the number of homicides, are, are, uh, the number is high. If you say it's, it was 20 yesterday or 600 for the year, but relative to the population, it's like 29th in the country, um, and, and that's 2019 statistics. One of the reasons why I think that that is are the years and years of, um, of redlining that occurred in, the, in states like, like that, whereas Houston's kind of been able to circumvent some of that thing with some of the uh, past redlining uh, legislation due to lack of zoning. But in Chicago, the black population lives in like one pocket of the city. Right. And it's just hyper-focused on this one pop, one part of the city geographically. 
And yes, there are a lot of gangs, gang violence. I, I completely agree with that part that the violence there is um, usually um, limited to, you know, the gang violence there. And anytime you have cities that have, um, that have a crime rates, naturally uh, data shows that they usually have high poverty rates and unemployment rates as well. Mm-hmm. So where, where there is a lack of opportunity, there's going to be high crime because there's desperation. So just in 2019, the number one, um, the number one deadliest city in the country was Detroit, Michigan, right? And that poverty rate was 37.9%. And the unemployment rate was 9%. In Chicago, that same poverty rate with the same statistical measurement was 12 points less, right? It was 20, 21%. So high, but not as high as Detroit. Yeah. And relative to the population, Detroit's the deadliest city in the country. But there's also a correlation between lack of opportunity and crime rate, right? Yeah. That's kind of human nature. Um, so I think that that when we talk about, like, it, like I said, it's very easy to, to um, um, it's a very easy narrative to deflect to. It's not an incorrect narrative, um, but it's an easy, you don't, it's it's an easy, easy. you don't hear about that. Like, I think the second most, uh, one of them is Buffalo, New York. Um, I mean, yeah, Buffalo, New York is the ninth most deadly city in the country. But people don't talk about it because Buffalo is 76% white. And I think that when people in Chicago, the crime rate um, is talked about so much because it's a very easy deflection from the Black Lives Matter movement. It's like, well, if Black Lives Matter, why not Chicago? Because Black people are killing themselves in Chicago. Well, it's like, they're doing the same thing in Buffalo. It's just white people are killing themselves in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. South Bend, Indiana is another one. South Bend, Indiana yeah. is an extremely deadly city, 69% white. But the the crime is going to happen, right? Homicides occur in this country. Um, the problem and the reason why we're even here in the first place is not because crime is any higher than it's ever been. It's because justice is probably lower than, it's, than it should be. And, and um, I think that's that's where we're that's where we're at as a society where we're we're meeting with a a um, kind of a revelation on who we are as a society relative to justice, not crime, because we haven't been figured out how to solve crime. Sure. A lot of times, especially, I know you want to talk about defunding the police. That'll be the next question. If you want to just take us there, you want to. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and I go ahead and start. Yeah, I just wanted to comment one part on that. Um, everything you were saying is correct, right on. Um, and I think I, I went on the wrong direction because I was just trying to correlate the difference between like the violence you're seeing in Seattle and Portland versus yeah. Chicago. I yeah. wasn't really trying to say that, um, you know, Houston's better than Chicago when it comes to that or even mm. Buffalo or anywhere because like there was the last part of what you said was spot on. And I think that crime is going to happen. You know what I mean? Um, you can't legislate that because people, if, if you have laws in the books and people are going to break the laws, I mean, you can't legislate hate. You can't yeah. legislate human dignity and the way people take that. Um, but I think I was more talking about just the specific differences between the violence that you're seeing in cities when, where the unemployment rates are low and everything else versus the violence you're seeing in Chicago. I mean, uh, Seattle and Portland right now due to these people that are just taking, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and using that first initial jump off when they had their protests and turning it into something that is violence against a completely different thing. Yeah. And I don't disagree with you at all, especially on the hijacking protests. However, I think 
what's happening in Portland is a little bit more reactive than that. So I think that initially, just like every other city, most cities in this country, large cities in this country are on like the 30s and 40th days of consecutive protests, right? Well, Portland- It's like almost on 60. Yeah, something like that. But why I said it was more reactive was, I think it did probably start as as the, the Black Lives Matter march, just like other places. And then it could have gotten hijacked. I think I'm not, I don't necessarily subscribe. Not that this is a wrong, um, not that I disagree with it. I just don't necessarily describe to um, the the Antifa as a movement. I mean, I, I just, I don't have enough research or evidence. I just haven't seen enough that, that makes me believe that they're organized enough to, um, to, uh, you know, be the masses of those people that, that we see. I, I just don't know. But one thing we have seen about Portland, if we're going to talk about Portland, is the emergence of these federal police, right, who are unmarked, unnamed, um, and who are uh, arresting people and, and taking people into custody, which is a whole separate issue that we've never, we haven't seen in this country probably ever. Um, well, I'll, so I'll, I believe that and I, I, I want you to come because I, I don't know about this, but um, one thing that my, my, what I'm taking from what I've seen about what's going on in Portland, you have these marches, whether they get hijacked or not, the populations are growing out in the streets. Then these unmarked federal police are coming in and then these crowds are growing even more because we're like, wait, what, who the hell are these guys? Yeah. How are you, how are you taking people into custody? That. We have a First Amendment right to pro- to uh, to peacefully protest and and, and uh, the freedom of speech, and then you have I think the Fourth Amendment. Correct me if I'm wrong, um, which is the right for unlawful searches and seizures. Which those are the two that we're we're getting two constitutional uh, rights like violated at one time, and I think it's really starting to trigger a lot of people. There's people coming down from the entire Pacific Northwest to these pockets who are probably more so there to be like, who the hell are these dudes and how, what, how did we get here? Yeah. Okay. And then we've heard the president acknowledge it very minimally. He hasn't really come out and say, yeah, we had, we did dispatch a whole bunch of secret police to, uh, to Portland. But one thing he did say was that we're going to do it in Chicago. I think they already did. Yeah. Or if they're not there, they're on the way. And he did acknowledge that whatever's going on there. And this is where you get this underlying politicized message of fear is driving people um, to, a, to a, a level that we haven't seen before because they're responding to something that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that I, I've never seen this type of um, um, presence of federal police outside of maybe the border war. Right. Yeah, of course. So that that that's what I think is going on there. Not that I disagree with anything um, that he that you said earlier, but that's my take on what's going on in the Pacific Northwest right now. Okay, um, and so just to to respond, everything you're saying is absolutely correct, and I value all of those rights just like anybody else. The way I took this, and again, I'm getting my information from Facebook or from the <laughs> news or from everybody else that, that's doing this. And they're taking snapshot pictures and then blowing mm-hmm. it out there, saying these unmarked guys are doing it. From my understanding, okay, 
a while back, I mean, again, this, this happened and people were up in arms for a day or two and then it kind of got shoved under the rug. Um, Antifa was named a terrorist organization um, earlier this year by President Trump, right? So when they do that, they are now allowed to use the federal troops to make those arrests. Because normally you wouldn't bring federal troops in on local, on yeah. to interact with anything. But in the case where it's a terrorist organization, like a terrorist cell, when they were going after ISIS or going after people that they were, you know, connected to ISIS here in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Federal troops were the ones that were making those arrests or the federal government agencies were the one, FBI or whatever, were the ones doing that. Now that you've branded Antifa as a terrorist organization, it opens up that that rule where you can use the federal forces to go after that because that's in the interest of national security. No longer a municipality or state organization, but the national security because they are considered a domestic terrorist group. So if they are going to that, it's they've specifically targeted that person that they're going after. It's not like they were arresting 50 people and throwing them in the back of a van. Mm-hmm. Like they had a target because they had gone, they've done their research, they've been tracking and following, we're doing whatever they were doing. And they were picking out that guy as the Antifa terrorist and getting him out of there. That's how I took it from my knowing of the thing. I was not there. I don't know. I haven't seen it. I haven't yeah. taken it. But from my interpretation of it, once he declared that Antifa was a terrorist organization, that opened up a whole different type of um, engagement from the federal government with yeah. that specific protest. And now, the as, way, far as, no, uh, as far as going to Chicago, I haven't heard that. I haven't seen it. I, I don't know anything about it. Um, and again, this is not me speaking from a person of HPD. This is me speaking just from my understanding of what's going on up there um, as to why that possibly is happening. But again, you take that incidence where you're saying that the people are coming from all over because this right's been violated, this right's been violated. Well, yeah, if a federal troop came and like just started marching down the city of Houston and started grabbing people, throwing them in the back of the truck, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that it's a narrative that's being spun to get those people excited, to get people upset. And it, naturally, if you're saying my rights are being violated, we're going to stand up and fight this. Well, we should. We should fight against our rights being violated. Yeah. But I don't I don't know for a fact that that's what was happening. Right. You know, like I, I just think the, the what I worry about politically uh, regarding um, uh, charging Antifa with being a terrorist organization is the fact that the Ku Klux Klan is not a terrorist organization and the Proud Boys are not a terrorist organization. And there are, um, it's a, it's, it's politically a great opportunity for, for the president to label a far left group, um, terrorist organization so that we could have these, we only see these protests in, in in the, the most liberal States in the country, right, right now. Um, and that's that's where Antifa happens to be, right, in Portland, in, in Washington. Um, but when we see a thousand-person uh, march of Proud Boys with torches and pitchforks um, following the, um, you know, following, uh, you know, massacres of, um, uh, I want to say it was, the, last, the first time that I'd ever seen it in, the, in those numbers was on the anniversary of the South Carolina shooting, the church Charleston. shooting, the Charleston, oh, the Charleston. The Charleston yeah. church shooting. But there was 100,000 Klan Proud Boys. And there's a great opportunity to, to, to label that group um, a terrorist organization, but it's South Carolina. It's, um, it's a demographic of people who are 
probably going to vote his way. So we can see politically that there's a that there is a um, kind of a disconnect in terms of all right. If we're going to call NT for that, that's cool. But let's get these guys too. I agree. And, and I, I think unfortunately, um, because of how polarized we are as a nation right now, the playing field is is not you know is is not uh, it's not widely cast. But I'm sure we can we can talk down this route. <laughs> No, and I and I agree. Um, I also didn't know that the federal troop, the response that's, to that's the federal point. troops was because Antifa had been designated as a terrorist organization. That's good to know, but that also it's, it seems rather convenient at the same time, right? So I'm with you, Daryl, in the sense where it's like, okay, we're going to name them this. I don't know enough about them to deem them terror, a terrorist organization or not, but it is what it is. But at the same time, we have on the other side, the KKK, yeah. that there's no reason that they should not be deemed the same. Uh, so so uh, there is some disconnect there, but uh, Sergeant Donovan, I actually appreciate you shedding light on. Yeah, that is a good, that is something I did not know. I did not know. Um, well, and again, that's, that's, that's my interpretation the way I saw it, because I mean, there's no person in this United States that should be able to rationalize having troops just show up and grab random people. Right. So me picking my brain, trying to figure out, okay, well, that's the news story that came around. Why would that possibly have happened? Right. Are we talking about a group of 55 people? Are we talking about one individual they pulled out of a protest? Are we talking, I mean, I just don't have enough true information. Yeah. But yeah. that's, that's the avenue that I could see. And you're right. I mean, if they're, if they're labeling one group of terrorists and one's not, but I wasn't, I don't have the information. Yeah. In front of Right. To know why they made that choice, not the other. Could it be political? That's so far above my set. It depends on what you what you truly believe. Mm -hmm. Great conspiracy about it or not. I don't have the numbers in front of me to support why it should be or shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. um, I know that I personally, being with HPD and everywhere else, we have had extensive training on Antifa. So I can verify. I mean, it's real. It's, it's really out there. Um, there is not a stronghold here in Houston from what I'm aware of. Um, but we are trained on it. It's something that is brought up because it's a real group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have the classification on why they were specifically named domestic terrorists. I mean, is yeah. it right. I don't When's know. the last time they walked into an elementary school and shot something up? I don't know. I don't know either. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have I don't have the answers on everything. I don't see these back page manifestos on people that have done stuff. Yeah. Like I don't right. have access to it to understand the true. Dynamic. I have a folder full of manifestos here. Give me one second. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Let's move on um, okay. because I think we're starting to get to kind of the, you know, the role that police officers or law enforcement or even, I guess, someone like federal troops play in society. So what does, uh, so is the floor back to you, Daryl, or is it, is it Sergeant Donovan? I don't uh, remember. It's on him, I believe. It doesn't, okay. It, we'll go back and forth. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so, so Daryl, starting with you, what does defund the police mean to you? Um, and, you know, how do we move forward to mend the relationship between police and communities do you think yeah so that i know that's such a, a touchy uh trigger word right now defund yep. um because it just sounds i think people are misinterpreting defund versus abolish right mm -hmm. i don't think you're going to find very many rational people who want to fully abolish the police sure. right as, as an entity some people might say that that is a word that has been thrown around but defunding is, it's interesting that we're having an issue um, defining what this means because we do it all the time as a society. We defund education all the time. We defund Planned Parenthood. People want to defund Planned Parenthood. People want to defund 
you know, social organizations and, and uh, public, you know, networks. All the, We do it all the time as a society. But now it's kind of weird that it's, it's like, like such a trigger word. But to me, what it means is to analyze the budgets of our police forces throughout the country and determine how those funds are being allocated, um, how those funds are being utilized, right? For instance, um, one thing that, that, which is kind of ironic because I do have a problem with federal police um, being unmarked and dispatched at the will of the president, um, but I, I also have a problem with a local police force uh, having access to military, um, like military uh, uh, equipment, and and um, you know if you go to a um, if you go to a, a march and you expect to see police there, why why are they in full military fatigue? Uh, gas masks and tanks and you know different different police forces have different access to these things and different funds but um, it's just interesting to see a militarized local police force that I think is is rarely necessary I understand you have SWAT teams and stuff but to militarize an entire squadron um, I've always found to be excessive. Um, another thing is, is if you look at the, uh, the most of the revenue besides our taxes that go to um, funding the counties and funding and ultimately funding the, the city, or specifically if you look at the revenue that um, funds most police forces are gonna be from traffic stops. So there was a study done Excuse me, I said 30 million people a year experience um, experience traffic, uh, police-initiated traffic stops, right? And, um, and from that number, um, 24 million, or so, I wrote this down, sorry, 30, 30 million people a year experience police-initiated contact in general, 30 million people. Of those 30 million, 24 million are from traffic stops, right? Um, and so I think that when we talk about the police budgets, what we are asking cops to do on a daily basis, I think in 2020, we can start to truly analyze, all right, how are we getting these violent interactions between cops and citizens? If we were to somehow find ways to reduce the number of contacts. If the number is 30 million a year where police initiate contact uh, or police initiate a, not necessarily a confrontation, that's got a bad connotation, but just initiate a meeting between themselves and a the citizen. If that's 30 million people a year and 24 million of those instances are traffic, let's attack traffic, right? There is no data that shows that traffic citations lead to less traffic deaths. Traffic deaths have been declining over time for the last 15 years, but most of that is because for two reasons, and I've done all this research, because I was very surprised to see that traffic, more, uh, the vehicular mortality rate has been on a steady decline for 15 years. And I'm like, that doesn't seem, well, like I always heard it's a leading cause of death. There's two reasons why that has been declining. The first reason is because cars are safer. 
they get safer. They're annually they get safer, right? The second reason is, or what's believed to be the inference from uh, vehicular data, is younger. There's less younger dr- young drivers on the road than there was. Um, the bulk of traffic uh, mortality are young drivers. Well, there's an interesting plot that shows um, as young 18 to 24 um, as the uh, poverty rate and the unemployment rate for 18 to 24 increases, vehicular traffic mortality rate of that same demographic decreases, right? So if they're not working, they're not driving to work. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, the, that demographic, 18 to 24, the unemployment rate has been increasing over time. Slowly, but it has been, and so has the vehicular mortality rate. It's a very interesting study that was done. So I say all that because I think the bulk of the cause of unnecessary interactions between police are usually of the vehicular um, frame, right? We see Sandra Bland, Philando Castile, you know, you could just go on and on of the people that we know and don't know. And it's like, man, why did you pull me over, right? That's such a um, it's always such a tense uh, moment, especially for Black people, because we 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 just feel a certain way when it's when we get pulled over. Um, and uh, I think that there's a way to remove discretionary policing. Right? If you're like if you're a hall monitor when you're a kid, and two people are late to class, and one of them is your friend. And the other one is a kid that you don't like. Who, who are you going to give a hall monitor citation to? Probably the guy you don't like. And I think that if you just kind of place that same ideology into humanity in general, not just saying that police think that way, but in general, we everyone in this country, myself included, Black people, white people, men, women, everybody, we have innate prejudices in us, right? If If, if I go to a even though I live, you know, in the hood, some in the hood, grew up in the hood. If I was on the corner and I saw a white man in a business suit and a black man in athletic gear, something inside me is going to be like, one of those people don't belong here. Right. And that that's a natural prejudice. That's not necessarily something I would call racism. That's just natural. We're naturally um, conditioned to believe that a black dude on a corner is probably doing something wrong. We watch enough TV shows to show that. The problem is when that police officer may see that something in their humanity may cause for a discretionary reaction to those two people where they would treat the guy in the business suit a different way than they would treat the other two. Mm-hmm. Um, so I say all of this because the, the way to, in my opinion, reduce the amount of violent encounters between law enforcement and citizens, citizens is to decrease the amount of encounters in general. That's an easy, I think the low hanging fruit there are traffic stops. And then when you get to that point, for instance, there in um, the town of Berkeley, California, my last point on this, Berkeley, California is removing all police officers from traffic, um, traffic policing, from like all traffic stops. And this was just passed a couple weeks ago by their city council. Police officers are no longer doing speeding tickets. Um, 
wrongful lane changes, um, running stop signs. There's now going to be a subset of the Department of Transportation, DOT. There's a, a subset of the Department of Transportation that's now going to handle all vehicular traffic stops from now on. Now, we're going to have to see if that works, but that's going to be a great case study in the next <laughs> five to years. But those Department of Transportation um, representatives who will be making these citations will be unarmed, right? So you can know if you're in Berkeley, California, and you get pulled over running a stop sign, that dude's unarmed. So you can just say, hey, man, just write me my t- ticket. Just write me my ticket. So I'm a firm believer in that methodology, which ultimately, if you take that responsibility away from police officers, then you're going to have to probably alter the budget because, hey, you guys aren't going to be making these traffic stops. Maybe we don't need as many or maybe we need to reallocate responsibility. So that's something that when I hear defund defund the police, um, those are some of the things that I start to think about. I know that's a lot to digest because I just went on a soliloquy there. But yes. No, I think I think it's hard, right? Like you said, Berkeley's kind of like a case study for us. We have no idea it might go well. It could be a disaster. It could be kind of a moot point. We don't know. Um, and so that's, I think that's where the question lies, right? Is what is going to work and what's not. And since we don't know the solution or what could or couldn't work, I think it scares people. Um, it's, it scares me at times where you're just like, okay, well, what is the solution going to be? And is it going to work? I want it to work, right? I want it to be a solution. Um, but I don't want to take away from Sergeant Donovan. So I'll let you kind of, uh, you know, have your response and, and, you know, anything that you want to, uh, address with, with Daryl. Okay. Um, so, I mean, when you hear the words like defund police, obviously me being a police officer, that comes at me. You know what I mean? Like it, you, it just, I think that the main point of contention is that the way it's presented, and again, it's not of anybody's fault, but it seems very attacking. You know what I mean? And I don't necessarily think that's the way it's supposed to be or the way that they're trying to come across. You know what I mean? But again, it's hard for you or not you as a person, but somebody to say something and then be completely understanding of how I'm going to take that. You know what I mean? So when you hear the words abolish versus defund, I mean, it is two completely different things. Um, but even when you say defund the police, it sounds very attacking. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 you know, you have that thing like, well, they're going to take money away from me. You know, I mean, that's how everybody's thinking. Um, and then it also kind of thinks like that it makes you have that point of view, like, okay, well, I'm not very valuable to you then. I guess I don't do a good enough job. I guess, you know, a hundred different things. But I think the main point is what's exciting people is just the terminology. You know what I mean? Like we're always constantly having to change how we do things anyway. I mean, I'm a firm believer. I listen to podcasts. I listen to, you know, self-help stuff as much as I possibly can. And a couple of you listen to them and you hear stuff like, you know, if you're not growing, you're dying. So, I mean, there's, there should be no person in this United States, whether you're private business or whether you're public or whether you're police officers that sits here and thinks that we are doing everything perfectly correct because we're not. There's always room for growth. There's always room for improvement. And if you think you're perfect, then you're, you're wrong, period. Um, now, there's going to be different ways, but I do think that you can't say that something doesn't work until you try it. Now, sure. do I think there should be broad sweeping change across it when you talk about the traffic stops or anything else? Because um, at what point do you go? Because right here, especially in Harris County, we are the number one um, county in the nation for DWIs and DWI deaths. Yikes. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are. So are police officers no longer going to respond to those? Or, you know, how do you, because a lot of times that comes from a, a switching lanes of traffic when illegal. You know what I mean? Like it, it mm-hmm. changes the dynamic. Or you get somebody, you know, at two o'clock in the morning that is pulling out from a club and they run over a curb. 
you know, are we not supposed to enforce it? So where do you, where do you draw the line as to where the, the interaction comes from? Um, and I'd be really interested if you could, I'm, I'm, I'll get your email. Um, send me that study. I mean, I love mm -hmm. to educate myself as much as possible sure. and read yeah. studies for everything. Um, because one of the things that we look at too is the total police interactions, whether it's initiated by us or we're called out. I mean, even in the thing of like George Floyd, the police were called out there. Now it's for something, you know, it could be an insignificance of a $20 bill, you know what I mean? But that wasn't just a police officer driving around and be like, hey, I'm gonna go grab that guy. Right. They were called out there for a reason. Um, so th the issue with that is we have 300 plus million interactions, you know, mm -hmm. every single year. And there are, you know, multiple and two, if one is too many. You know, frankly, one is too many if it's if it's gone wrong and somebody tragically loses their lives because somebody made a bad choice. But there are so many that go right that never get so many that never get attention. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, no. And so going back to defund the police, their police right now in America are being called on to do so much more yeah. than they ever have in history. I mean, we're having to be counselors and marriage therapists. And people yeah. are calling us when they're going through divorces and they have to go pick up their stuff from the other person's house. And, and that's, a, that's a problem. It is. 100%. That's a problem. Um, and one of the biggest ones that we run into right now that if you ask other police officers that we hate, because it, it, it leads to that, that, that whole idea of the police being bad, is when you get a call from the parent saying, my kid won't go to school. I need you to get up and go to take him to school. Mm -hmm. Because now we're turning into that role. Well, they're asking us to go get their kid out of bed for right. them and drag them to school when that's not a police officer's responsibility. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's you as a parent. Like you are the one in charge of your kid. Like don't don't threaten me taking him to jail because yeah. you know, he doesn't want to listen to you. You know what I mean? Like that, right. that that's not our role. Um, or you'll see even you know when we're just getting out of a car to go into a Valero or something to get a, a coke in the middle of the night, or not in the middle of the night. Hopefully it's not in the middle of the night, but middle of the day, and a mom would be like. I'm a, or they're having an argument with their kid and they're like, I'm going to tell that police officer to take you to jail if you don't listen to me. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and that, that just breeds that thing of where we are the bad guy, you know, yeah. like it, it, and it's, it's hard to fight that. So when you say defund the police, yes, that is a negative term. When you're talking about reallocating and using best performance methods to make this a safer community, if you say it like that, mm -hmm. who's going to Yeah, because that's, we're actually saying the same thing. You are, but I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing. It's just the way it gets spread. We talked about that whole click now, send, 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 when it yeah. hits on the police. Well, if you just change the wording to, you know, um, investing in our communities or, you know, whatever it is without saying that word, it's mm -hmm. been happening for years anyway. When you when you said yeah. you take away from education, you put it over here, you take away from here, you do it, but you're constantly growing. And if you're afraid of that, then you're wrong. But it's that terminology that comes across that just instills like that, that emotional response again to where you want to instantly fight it and defend it and say it's wrong. When in reality, if we sit here and talk about it, it's just like any other business and you're, you're sitting there, what are the best practices we can do to make this a safer city mm -hmm. for all of us? Yeah. Because yeah. There, there should be a natural interaction between law enforcement and citizens where it's all mutual respect. Sure. Um, and it's just gone awry. And I, and I actually have two things on that is I had another officer, uh, officer Ari Ross, who uh, lives in Columbus, Ohio. She kind of said the same thing where she was like, we have created now a culture or it's just become a societal norm of don't know what to do, call the cops. And it could be good, bad, and different, right? It could be everything from my cat is stuck in the tree to I need to get my son out of bed to go to school or, hey, someone is robbing my house, right? Like we all of a sudden just, they're like, oh, call 911. And that's not necessarily the response 
that needs to be done. Because like you said, like you often then are kind of casted in this, this weird negative light and, and asked to do things that you don't necessarily um, need to need to be doing. And then defund the police back to Daryl's point of like how we defund things or move dollars around or distribute them differently. No, that's, that's nothing new. Right. But I do think the term defund the police was used tactfully. I think it was to elicit a response a hundred percent because all of a sudden it's just like, well, what do we mean? And so for the most part to Daryl's point too, is most people aren't saying abolish the police, but some people are. And so I think Mm. the message is getting lost and it's getting hijacked again, going back to things getting hijacked. And I think that's the sad reality is again, those minority people, when I say minority, the the smaller group of people Mm -hmm. are making the loudest noise sometimes and they're hijacking something that could be a positive change. But people have the tools and the resources to hijack things so easily now, right? It's social media. It's, 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 you know, being able to shoot a text or an email, um, you know, showing up to a protest to a protest to just completely derail it. You know what I mean? There just seems to be so many avenues where things get hijacked and it's really frustrating to watch, I think, as as a as a citizen, because you want what's best, but then you see, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier, the worst of everything. So then you're like, well, will this work? You know, we just like we get fed so much information that you just naturally have all these doubts for a lot of reasons. But at the end of the day, a lot of us are saying and wanting the same thing. So I think I think we're all kind of saying something very similar uh, here, um, Daryl. I know you had a point. Yeah, just just one um, just one point to that because um, I agree with a with a lot of it. Um, one thing I completely agree with is that we're asking police to do too much. Yep. Um, and I think that's one of the that's one of the that's one of our bigger issues, right? Especially when you look at from an, at a fiduciary budgetary. Um, perspective, right? We're asking, we're asking people to do way too much. Um, and, and one thing you said was, you know, it was a counterfeit $20 bill, but the police were called. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's the scariest part for me as a black man in this country is, if, in my opinion, and we'll never know this, but if George Floyd was a white woman or a white man, the police probably would not have been called for that instance, right? For that, for that circumstance. Is he, he's not, it was not a threatening circumstance at all, right? I think that the police are called for, on black people, like a lot. We saw the guy uh, in uh, time, in uh, Central, Central Park. Park and the lady calling the cops and she's using her, her whiteness, unfortunately, and her victim voice to intentionally try to incite harm to this man. She knew what she was doing when she did that. The police should not have been called for a a bird watching compliance like situation. That's not the police. The police probably should not have been called for a uh, suspected counterfeit $20 bill situation. That's, I, I agree, like, and, and when we talk back to the using the term defund, what if we just redefined the roles of police in our society? Like call the police for this, call these guys for that. And I feel like, it's, I think, especially when we go back to my earlier point regarding traffic stops, 
black people are, I want to, I don't want, I can't make up the term. I, I had it written down, but black people are, I don't know the exact number um, off the top of my head, but black people are more likely to be stopped in traffic stops than white people. Black people are more likely to be per capita, more likely to be met with violence by police um, over white people. And if those confrontations are avoidable, we need to find a way to avoid those. We don't live in a society where everyone in this country is policed equally. That's the problem. And um, we probably are, are, we're probably too far gone to ever get to a point where everyone in the society is policed accurately or policed evenly. So if we feel like that, it, the, the way that people police other people is more cultural, American cultural or human nature, then let's use um, common sense data analysis to try to reduce confrontation and to try to redefine and, and uh, specifically um, uh, define the role of police in our society. And if there is another entity that we can create out of this, who can respond to, hey, my cat's in a tree. Well, let's call the cat in the tree people. Or if there is a, hey, my son won't do his homework, let's call that group of social work people to respond to that. Free police up. If you free police up from having to respond to things that they're not probably trained to do, you, you know, then we can focus more of their time on training them to respond correctly to other situations and increase their level of training for things that we need them to be highly trained to, to do, if that makes sense. Yeah. And one thing that I think the reason why the cops are called so often is because it's easy, right? It's nine one one. Yeah. And there's nothing else. There's no, there's no nine one two. Right. Yeah. So, so I think, I think that's one thing as we look at these other resources, we need to make them accessible, right? It can't be one eight hundred blah 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 because I think the same thing is going to happen. And I think like the suicide hotline now has like a three digit yeah, number. So sure. I think I think if we can do those type of things and yeah. teach you know your kids like, hey, if you get stuck in the tree, let's call these people. Yeah. We don't need to call nine one one because we need them to like actually respond to emergencies before somebody installs a pool in your backyard. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think you dial like seven one one first people to come out to um, inspect the, the piping and gas lines under your, you can call a three digit number. And these that. folks will show up free of charge to sniff out where the gas lines are on your backyard. And they want you to do that because so you if you get that. to dig in, you put a lot of, you put a lot of lives in jeopardy by yeah, trying yeah. to take it in your own hands. And that same ideology, I think we can superimpose on, on that. Like, Hey, instead of taking this into your own hands, call this other non-violent number and you have trained professionals to come and check this out so you don't just put everybody else in there. Yeah. It's not, so, I don't think it's that hard. So let's let's kind of uh, play off of that because there's been a lot of talk about, you know, incorporating social workers possibly into, I don't know if it's into the police force or, or ride-alongs, I'm not entirely sure, or responding to calls but Sergeant Donovan, how do you feel about those type of resources 
being alongside of you during a, let's say like, um, a domestic violence call or a child abuse call. And, and you work in, in, in crimes against children anyway. So this might be a good point to just kind of talk about maybe other resources that could be helpful. My concern, this is just my concern and I'm not a police officer. I don't, I'm not a social worker either. My concern is, is let's say you do roll up to like, um, a child abuse something right and and you do bring along a social worker or a social worker responds with you and things get very violent and then that's so then what happens to that social worker you know me as someone who is not like a trained police officer or trained to deal with those type of conflicts i i feel for those so social i fear for those social workers of what could come so i've been hearing that dialogue so i'd be interested to hear your both of your takes on the possibility of weaving them into kind of responses or call responses. Yeah. Um, so there, there's a couple of different things and it's kind of like a transition we talked about when we go back to defund the police and also this part of it, um, where you're talking about changing the way things are done. Mm-hmm. Um, but even going back to when you say like traffic stops, right? When you pull somebody over, you have no idea who that person is. Um, and so I go back to saying like, um, we had a beloved deputy here, Dolly Wall, who mm-hmm. was shot on a traffic stop, right? Mm-hmm. And he pulled him over for something insignificant or speeding or something. Um, yeah. And, but, he, but he had a warrant. And so that's, that's, a, that's another unknown factor that's thrown in there. Mm-hmm. So the people that are pulling you over for speeding, right? So they're not going to be armed now, right? In Berkeley, mm-hmm. but they're pulling somebody over for speeding. What happens when that person decides not to stop? Because they know that person isn't going to do it. Or they do stop and, hey, I can, I can overpower this guy because he didn't even have a weapon. Yeah. And I, if he if he finds out that I'm going to jail, then I'm going to jail. You know what I mean? Like I don't want to go to jail. Right. So there, there's so many other dynamics you have to mix in there. Um, and then going back to the ones with the social workers, and this this you may or may not know this, we already do that here in Houston. Good. Uh, we have a cert program, um, and so what that is is we actually it's not social workers, it's clinicians, um, and they ride along and they respond to mental health calls with our officers. So there's an officer that's in the car driving, and then a clinician's over here. And that's been a valuable resource on a bunch of those calls. Um, here in Houston, every single officer is mandated to take the 40-hour um, mental health course. So they're all um, crisis intervention certified when they come out of the academy now. So that's a week-long course on nothing but mental health. That's something that we have, but how are you going to pass that on to you know, Midland PD or you know, a smaller agency that doesn't have the resources that we do? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's hard to, to say, yeah, social workers can respond to these calls, especially when you're talking about domestic violence or mental health crisis. Those two are inherently dangerous because you're showing people, you're showing up to people when they're at their most volatile. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And the, you talk about a social worker, you know, if they're putting themselves in that kind of danger, and that's not something that they really signed up for. Um, now, when you say that they're more trained, like for myself, I have a degree in psychology before I became a police officer. Um, I think it's 80 something percent of HPD. We all have college degrees. Um, another 40% all have master's degrees, um, that are trained out there. I mean, that's, that's a highly educated workforce. You know what I mean? That, that's, that's working on the streets out here. And plus the extra training we go through every single year. Now COVID's kind of delayed it and we're having to do stuff through zoom meetings and online courses. Yeah. Um, but that's Houston. You know what I mean? Like that, that's something we do here, but how do you translate that to a department? Even when you talk about smaller agencies around the area, you know, halfway between here and San Antonio, you talk little cities, how do you get that type of education and training to those areas where it's out there or Waller County or any, any other county that doesn't have the resources we do. Um, 
it's it's hard. It's a it's a hard sell to get in and do that. Um, sorry, I'm thinking I'm getting a little off topic. What, what would you think about this? Um, so you know, a mixture of the Berkeley minds, the Berkeley format, and because you do bring up a great point. If I'm unarmed and I got to pull over somebody who's got a warrant, but what if uh, because my, I keep thinking like, man, it's 2020. Like so much should be automated. We went through it in the city like four years ago. We put cameras everywhere. And if you ran that, if you ran that stop sign, you just got a ticket to your house. But and everybody had a problem with it. Everybody had a problem because it violated all your just whatevers. And we voted that shit out of our society. But my thing is the reason why, even if I hated getting that picture of me. You know, <laughs> going through the stop sign, right? Everybody's gotten it. Like you can't, like you can't deny that that's you. The reason why it works is because it takes the discretion out of the. the I agree. The, it, it, it takes it completely out. It's like you ran, you you did the crime, you you get the fine. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And my thing is, let's say I'm unarmed. Let's say I sign up to be an unarmed text dot citation provider. Why can't I pull over a guy for an improper lane change and use my phone to take a picture of his license plate and send him a, a citation in the mail from me, ran a stop sign, goes to his house, no confrontation. And then it pulls up. Oh, buddy had a, buddy had a, uh, had a warrant out on him. Now we have a location on a guy that has a warrant out that the police obviously didn't weren't following him on you know Mm -hmm. but you you create you completely um you know uh remove confrontation from a situation from a guy like me who i don't have a warrant out i would prefer not to be pulled over in the middle of the night if i'm going 80 and a 70 i prefer not to be pulled over if i took a uh if i rolled a stop sign like i would prefer not to have that confrontation why not just you sit in your car and just digitally get and because here's another thing, last thing on this. One of the best feelings when com- when you have a confrontation, not a, when you have a, a interaction. An interaction with a police officer. I don't like confrontation, but when you have an interaction with a police officer, one of the best feelings is when they say, All right, man, I'm gonna let you off with a warning. And you're like, hell yes, I just got a warning, I'm good to go. But like that's discretion. That police officer could give everyone warnings if they he or she wanted to. Could yeah. They'd probably get reprimanded because, like, wait a minute, you just stopped twenty five people for going nineties and seventies, and they all got warnings. We're, we need some revenue. Like, wh- why did you give them all warnings? Yeah. But the fact that the warning is something that they can have in their back pocket uh, allows for a discretionary, um, unequal uh, side of policing. Like, sure. how about we just avoid the conversation, bro? Give me my ticket and let me go on with my day. And, I, and I'll and say then- this. When I lived in Houston, I didn't have a problem with the cameras because I was just like, okay, this is actually easier. Because also as a woman, uh, especially like at night, I, sure. I don't want to be pulled over. Sure. Uh, I don't want to. And and so I was like, okay. And, you know, for the most part, do I roll stop signs? Sure. Um, but You got you to gotta stop rolling them stop signs. I know. But my, my point is, for the most part, like, from a driving standpoint, I, I follow the law for the most part. Like I'm sure there's yeah. things that I've done, but you know, if I get caught doing it, then all right, give me my ticket. So I was in the same boat where I, I really was for the cameras. Cause I was like, it just eliminates so much of the headache. Yeah. Um, and, and 
again, it reduces the tensions because like I've, I've been pulled over a few times every time for speeding and I get so nervous. Why, why, why am I so nervous? Like, I, I feel like I'm going to get dragged away and put in jail, even though I'm speeding. Right. And I'm just going to get a ticket and my insurance is going to go up and my parents would be mad, but I'd always be re- like the most nervous and, and you know why? So I'm with you, Daryl. I think, I think that's a great like proposal, if you will. So Sergeant, I know you have something. Yeah, well, I'll just say, I get I get nervous getting pulled over. I mean, like, I mean, like yeah. it, it, you see them lights behind you, like, dang it, like, and you know, yeah. but it's just a lot of the conversation that's been had is because of what's happened in the past and everything else. It's hard, but yeah. even to this day, what I do when I get pulled over is what I've told my wife to do, is what I tell everybody to do. Because as a police officer, being on this side of it now, um, you know, when you're pulling over a traffic stop, you don't know who's in that car. Yeah. It can be a good person. It can be a bad person. It can be somebody you have no idea. Um, and so we walking up already have kind of, you know, you're, you're kind of worried about it. You're getting that, that feeling because you don't know what you're walking into. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, weather permitting, obviously in circumstances, but when I get pulled over, all of my windows go down immediately. Hmm. I turn my car off. I put my car in park, put my hazards on and both my hands are on the steering wheel when that officer approaches. Mm-hmm. And usually I have my gun in the car. Yeah, I mean, I'm a police officer. I carry it with me, and when he starts saying, you know, license and insurance, okay, sir, I just want to let you know I'm gonna reach for it over here, but I have my gun. I would feel better if I got out of the car and you got it for me, and and that's just something that I do, you know, mm-hmm. for me because and it, I'm looking back, I'm trying to put him at ease because he is walking up to me not knowing who I am, not knowing anything about me, and I told my wife to do the exact same thing. Now she's, she's got a ticket right now too. So they still get tickets. <laughs> she, she's fine. She has a ticket with the HPD officer gave her a ticket. So, I mean, it, it, it does happen. But so do you think thing- it's inherent on the citizen to put the cop at ease when you're getting no, pulled over? Not inherent. I think it's us as individuals where this is how we can work together to make sure that an interaction goes smoothly. You know what I mean? So like, were you saying, were you saying, Sergeant Donovan, you were saying as the citizen getting pulled over, this is you getting pulled over, you feel that you want to put the police officer at ease because if you know he's not as nervous, then you are safer? Correct. I mean, it's just, it, it's one of those things that, I, it, do I do I demand that that's the way every encounter should be? No. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to put that on everybody where it's your responsibility to do that. I just know that if I do that, the outcome is going to be probably in a better fashion because at that point he is already getting at ease knowing that he can look inside all my windows and not see that there's somebody in the back seat not see that there's a threat that he's walking up to you know I'm not going to take off and run the second he gets there because my car is already off you know like it's it's calming the situation down and I'm, I'm doing that as I'm taking it on me to try and de-escalate a situation before it's already even remotely escalated mm-hmm. now so I really even need to do that knowing that I'm a police officer or anything else? No, but it's just something that I want to do yeah. to de-escalate a situation to potentially for me. You know what I mean? And I can't make mm-hmm. everybody in the world do that. I can't do everything else. Yeah. But I know I'm making that officer feel better about that interaction before we've even done it. Because overall, yeah. that's what this is. It's an interaction back and forth mm-hmm. with me and with somebody else. And it's going to be, if we stay on a positive track, no matter what it is, no matter who engaged it, it's not your responsibility as a citizen to make sure the interaction's positive. I agree. Yeah, I guarantee it's not. But at the same time, it doesn't take that much effort to end on a positive note for Mm -hmm. both sides. Um, 
and I don't expect that when I happen, but I do know being on the police side of it, especially if you're talking about doing a traffic stop at two in the morning, three in the morning, yeah. uh, a car that has dark tinted windows. Um, like it's a nerve wracking experience just to walk up. To. You don't know what you're walking up to. And even going to a domestic violence call, you're doing all these different things about, the, the, I think there needs to be more training on just interactions as people. You know what I mean? It's almost like people see police officers and you're in your uniform and you're just, you're not a human anymore. Sure. You're like, you're not a person. You're this, you're the entity, this authority figure that's trying to do something to me instead mm -hmm. of realizing that we're just people and we, we, whatever we can do to make this interaction a little bit better, we should do. And that goes both ways. If the officer walks up and he's being a jerk immediately, that needs to change. Yeah. Because that's not the way to put them at ease because you're more likely to get a, you know, a conversation started by being nice. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> by engaging but yeah. it, it, i think this as people in general we have the ability to escalate or de-escalate with how we respond to other people sure you know and so if somebody's being a jerk if you respond back with that same level as a police officer or as a citizen it's going to keep going like this mm -hmm. um and i don't know if it takes cooler heads i don't know what it takes but i know that interactions themselves it's not inherent to do that it's not the citizen's responsibility is because I mean, you could pull somebody over that just came from a funeral. You could pull somebody mm -hmm. over that just came from something else where they're already agitated. Yeah. Or they have a negative previous experience with law enforcement. That's very possible. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, oh, great. This guy's behind me again. He's, I guarantee he's going to rip me out of this car and throw me on the ground. And that's already in their mind. So for me to expect every citizen to do that, I mean, that, that's just, that's silly. But I'm saying that's what I do. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? To, also put him at ease or she or whoever it is mm -hmm. knowing that okay i'm not a threat you might give me a ticket you may not give me a ticket whatever it is but i'm not a threat yeah um and it's just a, a way to interact with people yeah i think that you know especially inside the black community that's the conversation that that we have with each other you know that my uncles and father my dad would have with me or, you know, whatever. That's the conversation that we have is do what you can, exactly what you're saying. Do what you can to to, to put that person at ease. I'm in the other camp because you, you were kind of saying it almost like you can see it both sides, right? Is that it's not inherent on me as a driver to put a police officer at ease when I get pulled over. That's not my job. I'm not trained to know how to make you feel less threatened. And I think that that's what the difficulty is um, especially for black people is uh, a lot of black people are going to be immediately perceived as a threat right away, right? If we already know that we're more likely to be pulled over in the first place, that means we're probably more likely to be predetermined to be a threat, just kind of naturally. So that confrontation when the windows go down, which I think is also a good lesson because I've never thought about rolling all the windows down. I think that's, that's something that I'm going to take from this. But when I'm rolling all those window windows down, if, if I'm perceived as a threat already, I think that you're not going to communicate with someone who you perceive as a threat the same way that you're going to communicate with someone who you don't perceive as a threat, right? And so that, at, when you're already tense, naturally, thinking something inside you is like, all right, this dude's a threat, might be a threat. It's very rare that I feel like Black people are met with like, grace uh, uh like benefit of the doubt yeah. yeah we don't get the benefit of the doubt initially so and i know we can get into this like that's a super long conversation but that's why i think that number one compliance it doesn't save black people um i it, compliance 
gives everyone the 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 best chance. I completely agree with that. But we see time and time again, and I know that these can be cherry picked stories, but we see time and time again where where black people were compliant or not compliant, but they got killed regardless. And we see all these school shooters who are armed to the T who are reprimanded alive or, you know, people who are, you know, I don't know. I just feel like I would love to live in a world where compliance ensured my safety. I would love to live in that world. And I don't know if we are in that yet where compliance 100% ensures my safety. What, I got a quick question for you, Lee. What, what, um, are you in the Houston city limits? Yeah, so I live, I live in Westbury. You know where Westbury is? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Myerland, just south of Myerland? Yeah. Yeah, I live, I, I live in the city and I patrolled, um, when I did patrol, I was up in the Midwest area, so Galleria, but all the way from Gestern 59 to like mm-hmm. 10 and 59, so like some of the worst parts, some of the best parts, you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. What, um, what would you say just, just scanning your, your coworker networks? Yeah. What, um, what do you think is the ratio between HPD officers that don't live in the city limits? Oh, a massive majority do not live in the city. I got a problem with that. And I think that that's another thing that we can change. Um, not necessarily change, but like another thing that we need to probably start to confront. So a couple I, weeks ago, I understand. I'm one behind you, 100. Yeah, and so and I I look at it more from a fiduciary perspective, right? So just recently there was a guy who spoke to the city council in Syracuse, New York. I don't know if you saw this guy, basically standing up at a podium, and he's basically saying the same thing. Syracuse, New York, high crime rate. It's you know predatory policing, complaints of all these things. But then there's like a suburb where all of the cops live, and <laughs> there's like 140 staff cops in this city and 137 of them live in in this one suburb yeah and it's like that as well in ferguson uh, missouri you know we had uh, that's where the michael brown incident ferguson is like an 89 90 black area but none of the cops live in ferguson they all live in st louis but they leave their homes and go patrol those areas and the reason why i have a problem with it from a from a financial standpoint is you know, if our tax dollars are paying the salary are, are paying the salaries of a public worker, I'm not I'm not singling out a cop any more than I would a teacher, a fireman, uh, a clerk, a judge, whatever. But if our tax dollars are paying your salary, then your salary you're spending your funds in a suburb, which means that I am paying for the suburb lifestyle. Yeah. the way that I'm policed in Houston. And I think that that's something, I don't know how you change it per se. Well, I, I have a couple of ideas on it. <laughs> sure. Um, but that, that's something I wanted to bring up. And, yeah. and um, because that's something that's hit me recently is like, you know, we talk about community policing in general, but that's more of the psychological aspect of, if I know you, I'm less likely to approach you or um, I'm less likely to um, police you or assume things about you if I know you, right? Which should work. Um, and I think it does probably work. But then, like I said, the problem is we can't have community policing if we don't have enough people from the community who want to police. And okay, so we, we, people live out of town, 
and then they come in town and police me in here. You take your salary and you you your tax dollars, you know, so yeah. on and off. So I, I, I'd agree that, and we talk about true community policing. I mean, you want to, I want to protect where I live. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I want to do it. Right. So when I first patrolled, I lived in the area I patrolled. Mm-hmm. The house that I bought when I first promoted, I was a sergeant in the area where I did. So I got to know the school people. I got to know the community leaders. I got to know the civic club leaders. I got to know people here because this is where I live. And the problems that are here are going to affect me. They're going to affect my wife. They're going to affect my daughter. So those are the things that we all have to be connected to. The one thing, especially in a place like Houston, though, is that it is so expensive to live in the city. You know what I mean? Like the the prices here, you know, in my life, I'm very fortunate um, with my wife and everything that we do, like to be able to live here. Mm -hmm. But not everybody can. I mean, police officers make good money, but not not really good money. You know what I mean? And some of the some of the houses here, you can't afford them. I mean, you just can't. and so they move out to the suburbs where you can have a house twice as big for half the price, you know? Um, right. And you can't really blame them for that. Like, it's hard to do that. But I mean, there's, there's ways around it. You talk about, you know, our city council and everything else when there's always contract battles when you're talking about pay of police officer, pays of this, right? But what about instead of giving cash, you say, you know, the, if you buy a house here, your property taxes are half. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, I just wrote in my notes here, provide mortgage incentive. Yes. I mean, incentive. I think that's a great idea. I mean, what I'm saying, like, especially when you're talking about county tax dollars or something else, if you want the, the people to take accountability for the areas they live in, get them to live there. Yeah. You know what I mean, like, yeah. you, can't, you can't do it any other way. But you, when the prices of mortgages are so high here, you know what I mean? Right. Or when you talk about true, there, there are some programs right now for like loan forgiveness, right? Yes. When you're with HPD, if you get you get they pay off your student loans. I mean, if you yeah. have so, or they'll do something. There, there, there's other incentives besides straight cash <laughs> that can get somebody to be there. You know what I mean? So instead of saying, "Oh, you have to inflate my pay twenty percent so that I can afford to live here," you know what I mean? No, we'll yes. we'll cut your taxes. You know what I mean? We'll we'll give you other discounts. We'll we'll cover your city gas bill. You know what I mean yeah. whatever the case may be. Man, um, I really like that because I think of uh, Levittown, New York, was the first suburb in American history um, and it was right after World War II 1947 in Long Island where when Levittown is being created um, it was the first time that there was like funds for suburban development it had never happened before in American society but unfortunately right you had all these GIs um, that came back from World War II and um, the G- GI Bill was created and gave white soldiers the ability to have um, interest-free and no money down mortgages, right? And so it allowed a mass exodus from poverty-stricken sort of lifestyles to where, okay, your granddad, your dad comes home from the war, we just moved to the suburb because he just bought a house with no mortgage and he didn't have to put any money down. So he has no debt. And that's how, I mean, we can go all into the rabbit hole of how you can pass down generational wealth through home ownership, And that being a, a reason why Chicago looks like it does. And the reason why Fifth Ward looks like it does is because those people were not allowed to create general wealth for generational wealth for free. But I like providing incentives for things like that. I would love to be able to uh, incentivize community policing, if all of the cops that are in HPD live in Sugarland and they live in Pearland and they live in Cyprus because it's cheaper to buy that home in Cyprus, 
Like, what can I do to get you in Houston? What if, you know, you buy, you know, what if I can incentivize you by, hey, no money down, no mortgage, uh, uh, or a, a, a different interest rate so to, to ensure, number one, and you get that money back so easily because then your property taxes are now in Houston. Yeah. Paying yeah. for the, you know, so I'm not paying you to live somewhere that that place can get your property tax money. Well, so, and, but you're um, talking about shopping in local businesses because on a yeah. Tuesday night when me and my wife want to go out to dinner, yeah. we're going to be shopping local, which is here in Houston. And you know that, I mean? and that tax, that tax revenue is going to this city. Yeah, I know, and I, I mean, I think we're in agreement on that. I mean, obviously, you can't force it, like saying you can't be a police officer unless you live here, but yeah. we will incentivize it. You I mean, we'll, yeah. we'll make make it a part of it. No, and I think I think that's a good point, and I'm glad you actually brought that up, Daryl. That was actually a question I wanted to ask, and I just forgot. Um, okay, so last question that I'm going to ask both of you guys, and I know uh, Sergeant Donovan, you uh, want to definitely talk about this, but um, around body cams. Um, so, uh, are you guys still on, by the way? I'm here. You're not moving, but I'm here. <laughs> we can hear you though. Jesus. Okay. Okay. So around body cams, um, you know. We talked about earlier about how easily we record things now, whether it's phones, whether it's body cams. So, you know, in your opinion, Sergeant Donovan, what's, what's good about body cam footage? Um, should it or should it not be released to the public? And if it's not released to the public, why does that happen? Sure. So I'm all for body cams. I mean, they, they've done great things for policing. Um, it's holding people accountable. It's holding everything. It's holding the officers accountable, but it's also stopping a lot of false complaints and it's showing the truth of what's going on. I, I have no issue with them. The, I say no issue. The one issue I have is that it, it brings up when you talk about just even like the red light cameras and everything else, you know what I mean? Like the, the reason they got voted down is like, Oh, big brother's watching us. It's always there. Well, these cameras are always on and they record back. So like if an officer is too slow putting on a seatbelt when the car is moving, we're getting in trouble. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it's, it's catching all the stuff that has nothing to do with true policing, but it's a little policy violation and people mm -hmm. are getting in trouble for it. So that's a negative, but at the same time, it's a negative that I'll take. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, it's, it's part of the job. You're going to have to deal with it. I mean, it sucks, but it is, but it, we've seen such a dramatic decrease in false reports of um, police brutality going on that subject because so many people say, Oh, this cop beat me. He did this. He cursed me. He did this. And it, now it takes two seconds to look at the body cam and realize that's not true. Um, or if the cop is doing something wrong, it's viably right there on camera what he messed up on. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's recorded. Like, you, it's hard to dispute right. that. Um, but I, I get so – it's not upset, but when you talk about the release of body cam footage to the public, there's so many different factors go into it. Um, and here with Chief Acevedo and everything else, especially when you talk about um, – contested, when I say contested shootings, but any type of thing where there's um, a hint of discrepancy in what's going on. Um, we, or he does at least, from what I understand, bring in the family members of the person involved and let them view it first and give them the choice on whether or not they want it released. Because, I mean, if that's your loved one and they did something wrong, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, like they, they were cursing and screaming and pulled a gun on a police officer and then ended up getting shot. Do you want that to be the lasting image of your family member that's on the news and spread everywhere? So we get, from what I understand, he gives the, the them that opinion. The, the other thing that people aren't thinking, or I say, I guarantee you some people are thinking, so I feel naive just saying that out loud, but is the fact that if this is going to be a criminal case against the officer or against the person, now you're talking about true evidence in a trial mm -hmm. and you're releasing that to the public. 
And what that does is, especially in a place like Houston or somewhere else, say if the officer, and this is a completely hypothetical scenario, but the officer is involved in a shooting that is questionably justified or not justified, right? And you release that footage, you have now tainted the entire jury pool here in Houston. And you've opened it up to where that officer or that complainant can now demand for a change of venue to some other place where the people that are going to be his jury are not his peers. And the likelihood of a mistrial or something else occurring is huge. So if you truly want the people of Houston to be the determining factor of this, it's hard to throw out evidence on there that's going to mess up your jury pool. And that's speaking from just a law perspective on why that wouldn't be released. Um, do I think for transparency reasons, everything should be allowed? Yeah. I mean, I, if there's a dirty cop, get him off of my department. You know what I mean? Like th that does not belong. But the point of the matter is sometimes there's a lot more underlying factors to the reasons why they're not being released. Not just to say that there's a cover up or anything else, because I, I know officers that work in internal affairs and everything else. Times are changing. This isn't the 1930s, 1940s when stuff was so bad. The, the whole thing of we, we were having each other's back to the end. Mm -hmm. I have my brother's back in almost every situation. If you were a dirty cop, you're not my brother. You know what I mean? Like you're not. Um, I won't falsely claim that way. The people that I associate with, the officers that I know, I know none are like that. They're not going to intentionally go out and hurt somebody. They're not going to intentionally do that. Um, officers are charged with making split second decisions and then judged like they had the the benefit of looking back 2020 vision and seeing it when it's just, it's, it's hard. They have to get they put in a hard choice. And I love the fact that body cams are there because sometimes it shows that how aggressive, how the adrenaline was pumping, how it was going and how the, you know, when you hear these words, it's, you're talking a fraction of a second, they had to make the choice on to pull their gun and shoot or, you know, see something else, or if they don't pull their gun and they get shot. So it's just the, it's showing, it's opening up a lot more perspective to people and I'm all for the body cams, but uh, the one thing I constantly hear is they must be covering up because they're not releasing it. Well, that, that's not always the truth. It's not, that's not the way it works. And especially here, every shooting um, and every police incident where there's some, where there's an officer involved death, you know, where they go with it, it has to go to the grand jury for an indictment. You know, it's not an instantaneous thing like where they're going to do that. They gather everything from the entire scene and it gets presented to a grand jury. And so I think that, you know, people right now in America, they, there's just this, everybody has this urgency to get it done now. Now, 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 I want it now, justice now, everything now. When the whole process of presenting cases for an officer to the grand jury with the body cam footage and everything else was to take it out of our hands. Was it so a third party person, that's a grand jury made up of the citizens of this uh, county or this region, are the ones looking at all of the information and deciding whether or not to charge. It's not up to the law enforcement agency whether to charge the individual. It's not up to them. It's up to a grand jury of the people. But that's something that takes time. You know what I mean? When, when you take it out, it's not something that's instantaneous. Um, so is it a perfect system? Absolutely not. You know what I mean? Like, but nothing is. I mean, mm -hmm. when I first started the streets, today is actually 11 years to the day since I graduated the Houston Police Academy. Nice. When I first started, we did not have body cams. So you're talking about something that is brand new to law enforcement within the past five, six years. And there's still agencies in this United States that don't have them yet because they are expensive because it takes resources to get them. Um, and I mean, our, our body camera policy has changed 10 times in you know, <laughs> the first you know, five years of us doing this because you realize, oh, we didn't account for that. And there's a constant change. Um, 
So I think overall they're a great thing. I think that it's going to keep changing law enforcement. I think that it'll give insight to the citizenry. I think it'll give insight to police officers and what we can do better and use things. And we actually have an eye now where we can see how this officer could have handled it differently. We could see how, you know, how the interaction went that way based on something else. And we can discern what's true evidence and what's not. And it gives us an extra eye. I'm all for them. I'll, I'll end there. Sorry. <laughs> No, I, actually, man, with everything you said there, there's, there's not much at all that I disagree with from a citizen's perspective, um, especially when you talk about um, the fact that it's it, it kind of, it's kind of a two-way street where it it, um, it provides legitimacy and evidence and um, kind of some liability on both sides. It kind of a CYA for uh, police. I, I like it for that regard. I do have some opinions on the grand jury part. I think that's another conversation that can go a long time because we do have um, precedent that shows that um, when it's a police officer involved shooting, the um, the odds of that specific officer to actually be indicted are like way lower than the average citizen. Oh yeah, by um, far. So and 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 that's. And, and not to say that every time an officer gets in a, involved in an officer-involved shooting, that that person should thereby be indicted. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying whenever we have these issues in society, for instance, you know, Breonna Taylor is the one that comes to mind. Um, like, we're not asking for a conviction just yet. Even with George Floyd, we're not trying to get convicted. We're just trying to get indictment. Like, indictment is, actual, is the goal, because at least, you know, it can go to a, a trial at that point. But there, is, there are some, um, there are some, uh, um, there's, a, there's issues regarding, you know, the, the likelihood of successful indictment of police officers in those shooting. It's just so rare. And that's part of the accountability problem that I feel like we're trying to get to. That, but regarding the body cameras, um, I completely agree. So yeah. I, um, um, everything you said, I'm, I'm with. I can, I can do it. A sequel to this conversation. Yeah, I think I think we can keep talking all day on a bunch of different points. Um, and I think that a lot of it isn't that we're not that far apart. Yeah, what we're talking about, but some of the changes, it's all about you know when I say perception, that, that sounds like just a general blanket term on how to do it, and it's it's so much more complicated than just saying it's based on perception. You know what I mean? Um, but when you talk about like the, we had an incident that was very similar to the Breonna Taylor thing here in Houston. Mm-hmm. You know, the Harding with the two with a couple. but the the issue that i'm seeing and to me the harding street thing was a massive problem you know i mean the the officers are getting indicted you mean they're 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 going through it all but did that have the same media attention as brianna taylor no it didn't and 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 that's is that because there there is an indictment there was an indictment there but the indictment took it still took how long to do the indictment I mean, they didn't, it's not like they yeah. did that right away. It took months and months and months of them gathering all the evidence before they indicted them. Yeah. But it's I like, remember that case, but I'm, it happened here. So I, uh, yeah. I know that was, but see the, yeah, we, I know we can, I don't know we enough go, about it. Yeah. We can go on forever, but the, I remember but the, point, it, matter, yeah. the point of the matter with no knocks or whatever it is, I mean, those, you're talking about policy changes that can change something, but it wasn't something where uh, I think that because when people are involved if there is the racial component, it's easier to spread one way or the other. When it, the problem is the no-knock warrant, you know what I mean? When the problem is this, but if the example yeah. is that 
to make that emotional plea and that emotional thing to do it, it's going to gain more traction. Um, what happened here was horrible. I mean, it was, it's horrible. And it's caused all types of audit changes and changes to, the, to a department and everything else. I don't know the exact details. I'm not a part of the investigation. You know what I mean? But when you hear about Breonna Taylor, when you hear about all this, there needs to be change. There does. You know what I mean? Um, without a doubt. And I think just on your last podcast, Daryl, when I was listening to you and you said, you know, you're not in a position of power. Well, I'm hoping, brother, that soon we are. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that it's going to be our turn to take the reins from this country and the people like us will be the ones in charge. Yeah. And I mean, just the sad part is, I mean, you talk just, I mean, it seems like a long time when you say 50 years or 60 years ago, I mean, that sounds like a long time, sure. but I mean, 1964, you know, the biggest sweeping change in civil rights was in 1964, you know, okay. um, and that over the last 200 years. And that was uh, my math is horrible. I'm a police officer. Sorry, but I mean, you're talking 55 years ago, you know, and the two people that are going to be running for, you know, the presidency this year were both in their 20s when that occurred. Right. Yeah. You know I mean, so the, the people that are born in a different generation, the people that, are, that have those different viewpoints are hopefully going to start progressing to where this changes. And the, the thing I want to make sure everybody knows is that it true generational change takes time. You know what I mean? And it takes people sitting down and having the conversations, knowing that I am. I'm not perfect. I'm going to do stuff wrong. But as long as what I'm doing has the right intent at heart and that I'm not out for evil, I'm not out for evil against any particular person or class of society or anything else. And I think that we should all be a part of this and we all have an integral part to make sure that this is a better country for my daughter, for your kids, for everybody out there, that we can do this. This isn't insurmountable. This isn't something crazy. We have the technology. We have the smart people. We have the heart to make the changes that need to happen as long as people are open to change. And that's a societal problem that we've got to make sure that everybody's on the same page, that whether we like it or not, change is coming. Yeah. And yeah. you either deal with it and you be a part of the problem. I mean, you'd be a part of the solution, not the problem, <laughs> or you're a part of the problem, you know? Right. Um, so I just, I, I'm still through all of this climate, through everything going on, I have faith in my brothers and sisters out there that, through all this, even through all the hate they're receiving, through everything else that we are still gonna to come to work every single day and do everything we can to protect our citizens, protect this country, um, despite negativity um, back and forth, whether warranted or unwarranted, um, it's still negativity when I don't think any negative actions are gonna make anything better. We've got to focus on the future because I can't control what happened back there. I can learn about it. I can make sure I don't make the same mistakes but I've got to focus on what we do moving forward. Um, and I think that police departments across this country are, are making changes. It's just not at the level where we are in the United States where we want instant gratification and a sweeping change right now when the knee-jerk reactions are probably not what's gonna make lasting change. Lasting change comes from us having a desire to make ourselves better. Yeah. No, I mean, all great points. And um, I, I appreciate you both coming on because I feel that you both are very level-headed. You're educated, you have good opinions and, um, you know, hopefully it encourages further conversations that are similar to this um, because I think that is how the change happens because you and Daryl are obviously very different people. But if we noticed, you guys are echoing a lot of the same type of things or you got an idea from Daryl or Daryl got an idea from you and you thought about something uh, 
that you might not have. And so I appreciate you guys coming on. I know it can be a little bit of a vulnerable conversation, but I appreciate it. But la very last question, and it's not going to be a long-winded question and or require a long answer. Do we think the Houston Astros win the World Series? I do. I think that they have enough. Jordan Alvarez is coming back. Um, I think the gang is the gang's <laughs> all here. We need a we need a good uh, need a good stretch from Lance McCullers, um, you know. But for the most part, it's another year where we don't have any huge weaknesses if our team stays healthy. So the guys go out there and play baseball, sixty games. That's enough for them to to shake that rust off. And uh, I'm expecting big things from them. So I bet we go down to the wire with the Yankees, and I bet we see the Dodgers and. The World Series, and we take care of them. <laughs> All right, my, my little my little girl got soaking wet, and she wants to poke her head in here because it's raining outside. Hello. Uh, yeah, you okay? You're soaking wet. I, I appreciate you having us, Bernie. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, the Astros. We're gonna take it. We lost Garrett <laughs> Cole, but we got Lance McCullers back. So I think overall, we're exactly in a good position to do this. We're only a couple outs away from winning it last year, so I don't see That's why it. this would be any different. That's it. Agree. All right. Well, good deal, guys. Go Strohs, and have a great rest of your week. All right. Thanks. Bye, y'all. Thanks, Daryl. See you. Thanks, Arden. Great.